On January 1, 2017, Dr. Eleanor Lederer became the 51st President of the American Society of Nephrology, the third woman in the organization's history to do so. In this ASN Kidney News podcast, she speaks with ASN's Executive Vice President, Todd Ibrahim, on a variety of topics including what she considers some of the most exciting advances in nephrology, why she became a nephrologist, her thoughts on medical training, and music. So you love music, and you had a successful run in a band. I'm just curious, if your band could have opened for anyone, who would it have been? Believe it or not, (laughs) of all the questions that you thought you might ask me, I spent a considerable amount of time thinking about this because it's pretty hard. Um, My number one would have to be the Grateful Dead. Just no question about it. Even though our musical styles are very different, I just think that that would have that would just would have been phenomenal. But of course, they were kind of a long time ago. So if I think about if it were nowadays, some other bands come to mind. Um, most recently, I've been listening to a lot of the Dandy Warhols, who I like a lot because they're fun but they're dark, and I like that combination. The the band that I played in was all classic rock covers which is not dark, but I, I just think that they would be, I think they'd be great. I think they'd be just a lot of fun. So I'm trying to think of other bands that are fun but dark. So can you give us some examples? Well, let's see. I like the Hives, the Smiths. I think the Talking Heads would be an unbelievable band to be a part of. I can't imagine opening for them because their sets were so unique that it just, I, you know, I don't know. I, I just can't imagine it. But also, you know, I like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Meat Puppets, Joy Division, you know, people like that. But I also like a lot of the what people call the more recent punk, like the Hives. That uh, I guess of all the groups, the Hives are the, are the ones that I do like the most. I like them better than the Strokes or some other kind of new punk uh, groups that are out. But again, I mean, the Hives are sort of the same way. I mean, what they what they sing about is very dark. But their style is so upbeat. And the same goes for the Smiths. You know, the Smiths are talking about dying while it has the most upbeat music in the world. So I'm just curious, when did you decide to become a nephrologist? Well, it wasn't until my third year of residency. Actually, I was interviewing for positions in internal medicine private practice in Houston, which is is where I trained at Baylor College of Medicine. And I had one month that I was rounding on the general medicine service at our county hospital. My attending was the chief of the renal division, Wadi Suki. And it was one of those months where it seemed like every other patient was a kidney patient. I remember we had cases of malignant hypertension, flagrant lupus nephritis. We had a membranous glomerulopathy who ended up with a renal vein thrombosis. So some very, very unusual types of cases And at the end of the rotation, he turned to me and said, you seem to like nephrology. Do you want to be a renal fellow? And I guess I thought about it for maybe five minutes and then said, sure. Um, Really had never considered it before at all, but haven't regretted it for a moment. And for the record, that was 1981. Uh, That was clearly another downtime, I guess you would call it, in interest in nephrology because if I had not agreed to become a renal fellow that year, they would have only had one first-year renal fellow, and this is for a huge program that covered three hospitals, three giant hospitals. So, you know, that that was a time when nephrology was not that attractive to residents. I believe it's cyclic. 
So, I mean, just on that topic, you know, obviously mentorship is and, and role modeling are really important. What did you learn from Dr. Suki? First of all, he was known as a researcher in divalent ion metabolism, but his approach to patients was what really grabbed me. He could take basic renal physiology and apply it to the patient in front of him. He had a real way also of being able to look at the whole patient but then to dissect out the problems on a one-by-one -one basis and tackle each of them. And he was not the only one that did that. There were several other members of the renal division that could do the same thing. And I found that amazing. I really liked the fact that the approach to the patient was thoughtful and logical, that you looked at the whole patient. It wasn't just a single organ. You looked at the whole patient, but then you also were able to understand at a basic physiologic level what was going on for a particular nephrology issue. Um, and I, you know, I told myself that's the way I wanted to be. I wanted to be able to do the same thing. And you have done that. So you really, I know you have a big clinical load, so you see a lot of patients, but you also run a basic science lab. And, and I'm just wondering what's similar and what's changed between, say, where Dr. Suki was in the early 80s and where you are now near the end of the 2010s. Well, I'll tell you what. Grant funding is a lot harder to get. Actually, there, there's quite a bit that has changed. Uh, interestingly, the academic setup at Baylor was quite similar to what it is up here. Uh, say the medical school that's affiliated with a number of different hospitals, both public and private, with the same sorts of tensions that exist when you have an administration of a private hospital perhaps having a different agenda or different priorities than, than a medical school. But, yeah, research funding was a lot easier to come by. Just, I mean, I won't say that everybody always had a grant, but, you know, Dr. Suki had uh, research grants for considerable amount of the time that I was there. I'm not sure exactly what the funding level was, but I've heard quotes that it was in the 30 percentile. And that, of course, is considerably different than it is now. I think that the types of patients that we were seeing is actually extraordinarily similar, so I don't think that that has changed very much. Of course, it has changed where these patients are taken care of. Um, and uh, when I was in training, um, you could admit practically anything to the hospital. A person had a bad headache, get them admitted. When we saw somebody who had proteinuria as an outpatient, they could get admitted for their entire proteinuria workup, including the biopsy, wait until the results of the biopsy came back and start them on therapy. And, of course, that doesn't, that doesn't happen now. Um, one of the advantages for a trainee in having that opportunity was that you actually were able to see very easily and unfolding right in front of you how you do a workup on a certain clinical problem all the way to the very end to treatment. I think that's a more challenging now because you don't admit a patient for an entire workup. You do most of the workup as an outpatient. They may or may not even get admitted for the biopsy, you know, and then come back out to clinic where the decision on, on treatment is being made. So it may be a little bit harder sometimes for trainees to get that total evolution of an evaluation of a patient now. So if you had to define the transition from the primary care physician to the nephrologist, so if you have a population with kidney diseases, what do you see as sort of the ideal moment for that transition to occur? Well, 
I don't think that there's a single answer to that question because I honestly think that it is going to depend upon all three individuals involved, the patient, the primary care internist or family practitioner, whoever has been taking care of the patient, and the nephrologist. And I would predict that there are going to be some primary care providers who perhaps have a sub-interest in nephrology who are going to be very, very comfortable taking care of nephrology issues for a relatively extended period of time. And, you know, maybe to a point where the disease is more advanced than other primary care providers who may, you know, the minute that they see that there's one plus proteinuria or that the creatinine has gone up to 1.3, may think to themselves, wow, I better get this checked out. So I, I think a lot of it is going to depend upon the relative comfort of the primary care provider. And it's also going to depend upon the time availability and the interest of the nephrologists. I know some nephrologists actually who still do practice internal medicine. So they have some patients that they see who are purely internal medicine patients. I'll admit those individuals are becoming more and more infrequent as the demands of nephrology patients kind of come into play. But there also there are, you know, nephrologists who really don't feel like they have the time and don't feel like they have the expertise to be caring for a lot of primary care issues and so would prefer not to see a nephrology patient until later in the game. Now, that being said, I don't think any nephrologist out there wants to meet a patient the first time and have their first discussion be, what kind of dialysis do you want? That's not what I'm saying. But like I said, you know, some people are going to say, hey, you know, send me the patient when they first develop proteinuria, you know, and I'll establish contact with them and do whatever workup needs to be done at that time. And other nephrologists are going to say, if you're comfortable with the blood pressure and what else is happening with this patient, then you can wait and send this patient to me you know, later on in the course of their illness. So switching gears a little bit, so from your perspective, what are the most exciting areas of research into kidney diseases? Um, I think that there are a lot of them. And I guess the first one that pops into my mind is the discovery of the variations in the APOL1 gene and the propensity for the development of kidney disease in African Americans. To me, this discovery started to provide an answer to a question that so many of us had asked for so many years. You know, why was it when you looked at the dialysis population that African-Americans were disproportionately represented. And some very nice studies done early on suggested that even when you held many other factors constant, such as blood pressure control, diet, where they lived, profession, socioeconomic status, that still, even with that, that African-Americans progressed to end-stage kidney disease more than Caucasians did. So the discovery that the variations in this gene can confer some propensity towards the development of kidney failure, I think, from a public health standpoint, is just a phenomenal discovery, just an absolutely phenomenal discovery. Obviously, the next step is to figure out what exactly happens, what is the mechanism by which changes in this one protein can have such a profound effect on kidney health, and then after that, 
you know, what can we do about it? Is this a gene therapy thing, or would this be amenable to more conventional pharmacologic therapy? So that, to me, stands out as number one. I think another exciting shift in the way that we're thinking about kidney diseases is exemplified by the discovery that the antigen that produces, or antibodies against the antigen that produces membranous glomerulonephritis is the PLAR2. That started everybody to thinking more about the glomerular diseases apart from the simple pathology. The pathology has done well for the years that we've used it. You look at the pathology, you see a pattern. The name of the disease is actually based on the pattern that they see um, on, on pathology. But, but all of us knew that that's what we were doing. We were just looking at the picture and describing the picture and calling it the disease, discovering you know, what appears to be a causative protein has allowed us now to start thinking in terms of pathophysiology, not simple pathology. And we see this extending now from this discovery in membranous glomerulopathy to the complement-associated kidney diseases. And, you know, now what is, in essence, an entire reorganization and reclassification of what we used to call membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, which is now being subclassified into a more mechanistic type of organization as opposed to this is a simple picture. Same thing we see with IgA nephropathy as well. And, you know, the, the next big one that's going to fall is focal glomerulosclerosis. We already know from some studies, some of them coming actually from the University of Louisville and other places, that there are differences in the composition of the matrix tissue that is deposited in focal glomerulosclerosis and the different types. And this, again, points towards the fact that, you know, we had lumped a bunch of things together based on what the pathology picture looked like. Now we're going to be able to completely reclassify these illnesses um, which then points towards much more individualized therapy for them. So I think that's another big shift in the way that nephrology is happening. I think they just the, uh, you know, two other areas, just the entire how does acute kidney injury result in chronic kidney disease. I mean, this is something new and exciting. I can I can tell you that when I was in training, I mean, the teaching was you get acute kidney injury and you're going to get better from it. You know, and we know now that, sure, you'll be able to come off dialysis if you need a dialysis, but there are some subtle changes that occur. And these subtle changes, you know, over time can lead to the development of chronic kidney disease. So understanding that is very important. And then as a sequel to that, understanding what are the mechanisms by which chronic kidney disease leads to all of its myriad systemic effects. Again, in the last 10 years, we have the discovery of FGF23 and what that does to produce left ventricular hypertrophy. We have the discovery of the inhibitors of Wnt signaling that go to contribute to the bone disease, the loss of clotho. Whoever knew in a million years that, that there was a protein that was produced and expressed in the kidney that would have such myriad systemic effects. And yet it's very interesting that, again, even when I was in training, and, you know, for those of you that, guys that don't know it, I was, you know, I was a nephrology fellow from 81 to 84. Even then, my mentors and others were describing chronic kidney disease 
as accelerated aging. And we now know from the discovery of Clotho that, in fact, in many ways they were absolutely correct because chronic kidney disease results in the loss of Clotho, and the loss of Clotho is one of the major contributors toward aging. So this is, to me, is very exciting. I think the last piece that, that I would just like to touch on is that I can tell you right now that in 1984, if somebody had told me dietary potassium regulates the expression of the sodium chloride co-transporter, I would have told them they were crazy. I would have told them they were totally nuts. And yet, we see now discoveries of entirely new signaling systems that have allowed us to understand so much better sodium and potassium handling in the kidney. Just at a time, I think, when many people just thought, oh, this is done. We've done sodium potassium. We know how this works. So, you know, I, I, I do think that there is a tremendous amount of new knowledge in nephrology. I think there's so many exciting things that are right on the edge of happening. And the discoveries that I've talked about here are the first steps leading to very, very exciting and innovative therapies for these illnesses. I, I think that in the next 10 years, you're going to see a phenomenal explosion of new therapies for kidney diseases. So you're incredibly active on social media, and I'm just wondering what you're learning from the exchanges you're having with ASN members, either on Twitter or through the ASN communities. Passion. The amount of passion for nephrology that I see coming through is absolutely amazing. And this is on Twitter. This is on the ASN communities. I mean, I see an incredible number of very, very engaged and excited people. And I think that although we, you know, we have listed at the ASN leadership level and certainly in discussions with other colleagues, Dozens of reasons of why nephrology may not be as popular now as some other specialties. I'll have to say that people in the field are very excited about what they do. And this is what comes through loud and clear on social media, that people who are doing nephrology love it. You know, they, they love the work that they do. They love their patients. They get excited by the cases, probably just as excited now as they did when they were in training. And that's, I think that's, that's very heartening to see that this group of individuals who has chosen this field still feels as strongly about their choice now as they did when they chose it. So if you could have a theme song for the President's Address at Kidney Week, what would it be? Stronger Every Day. <laughs> Chicago. Well, with that, well, Chicago doesn't really fit your band profile, though. I know it doesn't, but that's like one of my favorite songs in the entire world. You know, that one, if I'm feeling down and terrible, I can put that one on, and it'll pick me right up. Well, Dr. Letter, thanks for joining us today, <laughs> and we will try to get the rights to Chicago so that we can we can play it both on this podcast but also during your presence address. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Todd. Have a good evening. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.